Good morning, everyone. As few people are still filing in, I have a couple of announcements before we begin our service. Uh, one of them is quite important, especially if you like to celebrate Valentine's Day with your sweetheart. Uh, just be aware that the youth group fundraiser, where they babysit your children for them, um, is coming up. You can see contact information in the bulletin that Saturday, February 11th. Uh, it's a very easy way to schedule something with you and your sweetheart. Um, the other thing I want to alert you to is following the service this morning. We would not ordinarily have anything. Today is Hospitality Sunday where we encourage you to invite others to your house. There is something going on after this morning service. As you'll notice in the bulletin, um, John Shaw is here to lead the service. And after, or I should to preach, I'll be leading most of the service along with Pastor Jonathan. But after the service is finished at about quarter after 11, I've asked him to speak to our leadership about how do you know when a church is ready to plant a church. And originally we were going to do that in a large youth group uh, room at the end of the hall. Instead I thought maybe there might be others of us who are interested in listening to that. There will be some question and answer time. So if you're interested in that, uh, be here back in this room at quarter after 11 and we'll go until about noon. So uh, again, yeah, if that's a change to your plans and you had other people invited over for the service, that's fine as well. You're encouraged to invite others over. But if you do have free a time after the service, please stick around for that. Now is a time where we get ready to worship God. Um, so you're going to hear some music playing. And after that, I'll give you the call to worship. Our call to worship this morning is from John chapter 4, verse 23. When I read it in a moment, you'll hear that it talks about worshipers. And I want to explain that for you very briefly. You were created to worship God. Whether you're new here, the first time joining us over the internet, and you've never been to church before, you were created for what we're about to do. And in this morning's service from creation through the fall, where we've rebelled against God, you'll hear that in our time of confession. You'll hear about the gospel news as we come before God in humility and hear the word preached, especially about Jesus Christ. And then you will also witness the celebration of the Lord's Supper in which we anticipate the coming future in which all things will be made right. And so when you hear worshiper in, Psalm, or in John 4 verse 23, think to yourself, that's part of God's big story that he is unfolding. And this morning we're invited into that. From John chapter 4, verse 23, the, the scriptures say, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. 
Stand with me and sing, please. Father, there is in our hearts the desire not to see this world as belonging to you as creator. In fact, we often battle with the reality of making this world our own and wanting to be the captains of our own ship, the authors of our own histories, to want things to be done in our own way. And we're thankful that you bring us into worship this morning, telling us that you are God above all, that there's no one and nothing like you. There's no being higher, there's no being stronger, there's no being greater, there's no one more holy than the God that we've come here to worship. And so we come into your presence this morning with humility, asking that your spirit would be here as the call to worship indicated, that we would worship you in spirit, that he would enable us to come before you in a way that is pleasing to you, but we would also offer you worship that is in truth, worship that is delightful to you, that you receive from the hearts of those who love you and strive to follow after you in obedience. We need your help 
And so may the Spirit of Christ be with us as we worship you this morning. We pray in his name. Amen.
seated. We do need our God, especially as we consider ourselves in the light of our rebellion against Him. He made us perfect, but our fall together means that we're no longer. And today we read from Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. I'm going to read these words. This is what we call the second commandment. And then afterward, we're going to confess together the words from our confession of faith that explain this to us. The scriptures say, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now would you say with me, what sins are forbidden in the second commandment? The sins forbidden in the second commandment are all devising, counseling, commanding, using, and any wise approving, any religious worship not instituted by God himself, corrupting the worship of God, adding to it or taking from it, whether invented or taken up of ourselves, or received by tradition from others, though under the title of iniquity, custom, devotion, good intent, or any other pretense whatsoever. Hmm. The word that strikes me when we read the second commandment is that after all of these things that talk about the worship of God, that we have entered this morning into a sacred place before the presence of our God, and the worship that we offer must be pleasing to Him because He is God and we are not, the word that really jumps out to me in the second commandment is that God is a jealous God. Ordinarily, jealousy is not a good thing, but there are certain circumstances in which it is. If you're married, it is right for you to be jealous of your spouse's affection. And the jealousy of God in this passage is a desire that God has not just for external worship, that you sing along, that you sing on tune perhaps, <laughs> That you read the passage, that you listen to the sermon, but the jealousy of God extends far past that to the very core of your being. The jealousy of God means that he wants your heart. He wants everything about you in worship, but outside of worship as well. And this morning as we come to confess our sin, I want you to think of ways in which it is a struggle for God to be the Lord of your heart both in this time as you're here worshiping but also how that might be true in other places in your life as well. I'll give you time to repent of that privately, and then I'll read or rather pray with you as we confess publicly. Let us bow in prayer.
Father, as you have listened to the confession of these people, we ask, Lord, that it would be a sincere confession. I confess my own tendency in worship to be critical, critical of what is being said or sung, critical not because of a desire to conform to your word, but because of a desire for things to be done in the way that I want. Forgive us for that, Lord. In whatever form our sin takes that offends the second commandment and the jealousy of our God, we repent. And we pray that you would lead us to the one who deserves our full attention and appreciation, and even further to the one who has overcome our hearts and their tendencies, and has not only redeemed us and forgiven us, but has set us free from the slavery of those sins to which we tend. Father, you are good, and we're thankful you hear our confession as a merciful Heavenly Father when we come in Jesus' name. Amen. The words of promise to you this morning and forgiveness are found in Psalm 85, verses 1 and 2. The psalmist says, Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. The New Testament says that covering our sin comes in Jesus Christ. He is the propitiation for our sins against the second commandment and every sin that we commit. That is our joy to proclaim this morning as we stand to sing, Yet not I, but Christ in me.
please join me in our prayer of thanksgiving. Father, we are so thankful this morning that we are living in your world and that you continue to hold it all in your faithful hands. Not only do we see your hand in all of creation, but we can see it in each of our lives. In a world that calls good evil and evil good, we are thankful for the hope that we have in Christ. We are thankful for a hope that promises there are better things to come for those who are in Christ and that this world is not all there is. And we know that these promises are true because this is our Father's world. You are still the ruler of all things. So thank you for your constant faithfulness to us. Please keep us as a church body and individuals focused on Jesus and things eternal and not desires that are here today and gone tomorrow. Thank you for your word and the guiding light that it is to remind us of what is important. Thank you for the Lord's Supper we are able to partake of later and the faithful reminder it is of what you have graciously done for us. As we come to the preaching of your word, we ask that you be with Pastor Shaw and give him your grace as he delivers your word to us. Open our hearts to receive your word and use it to draw us closer to you. Be also with the offering we are about to give and use these funds to further your kingdom for your glory. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
On the back of our bulletin, there's a list of people that we pray for, and we're going to be doing that now. Again, I encourage you to keep that list handy. There may be other folks that you pray for as well, which is wonderful. But these are people who have made the request known to our church. If you're a member and you're not on our Friday email list that includes more of this information about these folks and how to pray specifically, send a note to the office. And our new office administrator would love to loop you in. And since we prayed for months for a new office administrator, I'm going to all tell you a secret as long as you promise to keep it to yourself, and that is she's doing a fantastic job. So let's turn to our God. Father, in a moment like this, when we pray for each other, I think of Jesus' words that he spoke to his disciples in John when he said that the world would know that we are his followers by the love that we have for each other. And we repent of that not being true at times. When our lives become so full and we become so committed to the things that we believe will bring us joy that we offend not only the second commandment, but we fail to love each other as we should. But we're also very thankful this morning for the many ways in which that love is shown, for the visits, for the calls, for the consistency of care that is shown by so many. We thank you for the work of our elders and deacons and the women's ministry group in all the ways that they care for each other. We thank you for the friendships, for the persistence over many years sometimes that is evidenced by that love. And Lord, we pray this morning specifically for those who are on our bulletins, but we pray for others as well. For those whose concerns are too sensitive in nature. For those who would feel exposed or maybe even ashamed if others knew. But Lord, you know. And it is not wrong, in fact, it is good for us to bring them before you as well. And we do. And we pray that you would fill them with the joy and the hope of the kingdom of Christ. That there is nothing stronger in this world than our Savior. And even though we might not see that at every moment, Jesus said he is coming back. And when he returns, everything will be made right. Every tear will be wiped away. Every sorrow will be healed. And there will be no reason for pain. Father, we pray for those that we note here. We pray for Katie and her family as she recovers from her hospital visit. We pray that we continue her healing, we continue well, give her strength, bless her husband as he cares for her and their child. We pray for our sister Louise as she also recovers from surgery. We pray that her, her pain would be relieved in her back. We also pray for your comfort for her family as they mourn the passing of a of a great nephew in their family, Lord, especially give peace to her sister. We pray for Dorothy Biker and the entire Biker family. Lord, it's not easy when someone important for us go, uh, important to us goes into hospice care, and we pray that you would give them wisdom in the days that come and peace and comfort, knowing that you are the God who cares for us at all times. We pray for our brother, Dwayne Torrance, who's been through a whole series of health concerns we ask, Lord, that you would restore him and that you would bring him back to this place where he can worship God with us. We pray especially for him this morning as he joins us over the internet stream. May he know your closeness to him, even if he can't be here physically. We pray for Richard Bauma as he recovers from his stem cell treatment. 
Lord, especially keep him from any infection. He's such an, in such a vulnerable position at this point. We pray that these treatments would also be effective. And Lord, you would also restore him, give patience to him and his wife. We pray for Mickey. Lord, we ask for your care in all regards for her. Lord, she looks to the future and to the coming resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, that is our hope. But in moments in which we see our own lives fading, we look to that hope perhaps even more strongly than we did before. And we pray that you would fill her spirit with the joy of that future. We pray for Zach Francois and all those who are in Haiti who are waiting for peace to come. Would you bring it soon? And in the moment of this disturbance, may he stand along with those who are also believers in Christ as beacons of hope in a culture that sees so much deception and harm. Lord, protect him and his, and his family and those who work with him. And we pray, Lord, for the day when he can move around freely again. We pray for Clara Stahl. We thank you, uh, Clara Salorp, rather. We pray for her as she tries to sort out in her mind with the help of her family the best steps to take next. Lord, we pray for wisdom and agreement among her doctors. And we pray for relief from her pain and discomfort. And we pray that in the future that you would give her many, many years. And we pray for our precious sister, Gail Stahl. Lord, be constantly with her. May she know your tenderness and your compassion in ways that are even beyond what she has experienced to this point. Lord, you are good and kind to her, and we are thankful for the many ways that you've shown that in the past. We rejoice also this week with those who've experienced the joys of childbirth and also those who are expecting children. Lord, you are such a wonderful God, a covenant God, blessing us and our children and generations to come. And we pray for the couples and families that are on our prayer list expecting children, those who have recently given birth. We ask, Lord, that you would give them the confidence to know that their children belong to you first and foremost. We pray for other churches in our community, including our sister church in Kalamazoo. We pray for other churches in our community where the gospel is preached as well. Lord, may many come to hear and to trust in Jesus Christ today. We pray for the day when this building and others like it will be pressed to overflowing as many come to say, tell us of the hope that comes in Jesus Christ. Lord, we anticipate that day, but we wait upon you patiently. And Father, we pause just for a moment before we hear your word to ask for your spirit's help as our brother John proclaims to us the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and his vision for the future. Lord, you brought him many miles to be here. He's a precious brother to us, maybe not known well to many of us, and yet because he desires that the kingdom of Christ would come and the will of Christ be done on earth as it is in heaven, we consider him a brother. Lord, he's been busy, and we pray that you would free his mind, that he would have the ability to concentrate, free his spirit, If he feels any fear speaking to people he might not have known before, release him from that fear as well. And we pray that rather than speaking simply to us, he would see himself as speaking before the God alone who judges every heart and knows every intention that we possess. Lord, may he speak before that audience of one. 
Lord, hear and answer each one of these prayers, for we come in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Good morning. It's a privilege to be here. Thanks so much uh, for Jeff in particular and the invitation to come. It's my pleasure to be here as well. It's, uh, it's a real privilege to be able to be with various churches. I get to travel a lot and, and be with new people and meet new people and speak about Jesus together. One of the things I love is to sing with folks that I haven't sung with before. And uh, that last song is one of my favorites. So it's uh, already been a great morning to be with you, and I'm looking forward now for us to consider God's Word together. Um, If you have a copy of the Scriptures near you and you could uh, turn in it, you might turn to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll be looking in chapter 2 there, verses 1 through 7. And uh, before I read that, it's maybe helpful to know a little bit of What's happening in this letter um, as we get to this point? This is Paul writing to Timothy. Paul is a mentor to this young pastor. He's speaking to him about the great privilege that's his as a minister of the gospel. In chapter 1, he's called him and encouraged him to speak the truth, to speak the truth of the gospel, to proclaim it, and in so doing, to protect those that he's been called to serve. And then as we get to chapters 2 and 3, Paul begins to explain to Timothy, and the Holy Spirit explains to us what it should look like to live uh, corporately in the church, how we ought to behave in the household of God is how he says it in one place. And in particular, he's speaking to us in chapter 2 about worship, that great privilege that we have together. And it should not be lost on us that as he begins to speak about worship, the first thing he does is calls for prayer. That's where it begins. So let's hear these words, 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life godly and dignified in every way this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of god our savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth for there is one god and there is one mediator between god and men the man christ jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. And that sends the reading of God's perfect word. Let's let's turn to the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing on our time together. Lord God, you have been so kind to speak to us In the pages of the scriptures, we can know with confidence that this is the very word of our God who loves us and cares for us in all the best ways. And so we pray that as we come to 
your word this morning, this word of our God to us, that we would be ready to hear, that you would uh, remove those things that would distract us or, or keep us from seeing the glories of the truth of the gospel, that we might respond in faith, believing your promises, and respond in obedience, that we would keep your commandments. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's a long list of revivals in the history of the United States of America, but I want to speak to you about one of them. It's probably an unfamiliar one to most of us. It was titled The Businessman's Revival. Continued for about 18 months in 1857 and 1858. This was a time of of turmoil in the United States, a depression that was greater than any uh, that they'd experienced yet as a nation and a small church in New York City, the North Dutch Church in New York City, asked a businessman, Jeremiah Lamphere, if he would come and, and serve in the church as a lay missionary. And as he was considering what that meant in a time of such significant turmoil in the city of, of New York, this was his prayer. Lord, what would you have me do? And he became convicted that the one thing that he must do is to cry out to God in prayer that the Lord would pour out his blessings as many would come to know Jesus. And so that's what he did, one man praying. And eventually he scheduled a prayer meeting at lunchtime, invited uh, those who were at work to leave their workplace and to come to that church and pray. And the first week that they met, there were six people who prayed. The next week, there were 20. The third week, there were 40. And within six months, there were thousands of people praying every weekday at lunchtime that the Lord would pour out his blessings on the the church as many would come to know Jesus. One particular day, a a local journalist uh, wanted to see the significance of what was happening, and he got in his his horse and buggy, and over that hour, he was able to visit six churches where people were praying and found 6,000 people just in those churches gathered to cry out for the Lord's blessing. And what did the Lord do? He worked mightily. Thousands upon thousands were saved. The revival spread not just in New York City, but to cities all across the United States. And according to the records, at least a million people came to know Jesus through the prayers and the witness that began in this one church in New York City. Think about what happened in those 18 months. Lives were changed. Hearts were turned toward Jesus Souls were saved from their sins. And it all began with a faithful man praying. And then a prayer meeting of six. And the Lord poured out his blessing. Friends, this is what the church needs. This is what the world needs. 
the church united in prayer with a faith-filled vision for God's saving plan to be activated for the nations. This passage in 1 Timothy 2 talks about that kind of commitment to evangelistic prayer, a church united in prayer with a faith-filled vision conformed to the hearts of our God and of our Savior. We see in 1 Timothy 2, God's heart for the lost, God's pursuing love for the nations, and Christ's saving work for the world. And when the Holy Spirit conforms our hearts to God's heart, we can expect people praying and many thousands of people added to the church of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of our Savior. And don't miss the emphasis in this passage. Did you notice it? How many times it says all, all, every, all. Don't miss the emphasis of God's desire, his concerns for all people, Christ's ransom and cross that concerns all people, the gospel that concerns all people. That's the vision that this passage calls us to. And when that vision captures the heart of the church, we can expect prayer for all, proclaiming the gospel to all, and people being gathered into the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we'll consider this morning. We'll consider it in four parts. First of all, we'll see prayer for all. Secondly, an invitation for all. Third, a ransom for all. And then lastly, a testimony to all. First of all, a prayer for all. Look again at at verse 1. It says there, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Remember the context of this passage. It's speaking about corporate life and public worship, and therefore it's speaking in particular about corporate and public prayer. This is a passage about how we pray together as the church of Jesus Christ. And then that corporate prayer, as we lift our voices together, shapes our prayer in our families and our private prayers as we pray for the Lord to save many. But of first importance of primary place in the life of the church is corporate prayer that looks like the prayer that we find in 1 Timothy 2. It's, it's interesting to see the list of the ways that prayer is described. There's been pages and pages spent trying to understand why he uses four different words for prayer in this passage. Uh, but understand at least this much. What he's telling us is that we should be praying every kind of prayer as the church of Jesus Christ. Intercessions and supplications, but also thanksgivings to God for what he's done. And we should be praying all those kinds of prayers with an eye toward all kinds of people. We need to think a little bit about what's meant in this passage by all, that we can struggle with this, and this is probably the time for us to consider it. We can know that all in this passage, and in particular praying for all people as it describes to us, doesn't mean that we pray in specific for every last person, because that's impossible. I don't know about where you live, but I live in a community with about 150 houses, and I know where the houses are, but I don't know all the people that live in those houses. I can't pray for each of them 
by name, but I can pray for them as a community. But all means a few things at least. It means, first of all, that we pray for every kind of person. And we understand that our evangelistic prayers are directed toward the world. We know that the world, broken by sin, tends to divide and tear apart and separate people and break relationships. But the gospel breaks down barriers and brings people together through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the whole direction of the the New Testament. There's no longer Jew nor Gentile. There's no longer male nor female, slave nor free, rich nor poor. For all are in need of our Savior. And so it's a call to pray for all kinds of people, every race and every nation, evangelistic worldwide prayers, because we understand that the gospel endeavor has a worldwide evangelistic reach. And so just as the gospel is for all people, so we should pray global prayers that align with God's desire for the nations. But let's lean into this just a little bit more. I think we often resonate quite easily with global prayers. We understand we should pray for missionaries in Africa and Asia and South America that the Lord would bless their witness in such a way that many would come to know Jesus. And we pray for a fruitful harvest all over the world. But notice as well that this call to pray for all people is a local call. We're not just called to pray for missionaries in other nations or church planters in other cities, but we're to pray for the people across the streets, down the hall from us at our workplace, the businesses that we frequent. We're called to pray for all of them, for they're all in need. They all have eternal souls that will never die, and they're all in need to be reconciled with God. And so this global prayer is also a call to pray for our neighbors and to pray all kinds of prayers for every kind of person, for people of every nation, and for the neighbor across the streets. And to drive this point home, Paul gives us an example. Verse 2. He says that these prayers should include prayers for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Why does Paul choose this particular example as an encouragement to us? There's probably lots of reasons, but let me suggest this one, that they would be an unlikely subject for the prayers of the church. To pray for pagan rulers, oppressive authority figures, And yet we're called to pray for them. And maybe you're thinking, I know oppressive rulers that I can pray for. Paul was saying, pray for Nero, who was killing and destroying the church. The Old Testament in Jeremiah, the Israelites were called to pray for Babylon, who had put them in exile. Ezra called Israel to pray for Cyrus, a a pagan ruler of a pagan nation. In part, Paul is, is saying something like this. Pick the person least like you 
and maybe more pressing, least liked by you. And pray for them with thanksgiving. He goes on to tell us why, at the end of verse 2, that you might live a peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. You're praying in part that God would use these rulers and authority figures as tools and instruments to create an orderly society, the the best environment for us to live the Christian life and uh, the best environment for us to testify to the gospel. That's certainly true and a, a fair application of this passage. But the focus is instead not so much on the order that they would create, but that the lives that we as Christians would live in the society where God has put us quiet lives, dignified lives, that we'd walk in a manner consistent with the gospel that is the best advertisement and testimony to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, is that a timely word for Christians in America today? To lead a quiet life of thanksgiving and submission even when our leaders frustrate us. To pray for them with love and thanksgiving. To pray for their well-being just as we should pray for those closest to us. It's a word I need to hear. It's not an easy word for me. And I, I think it's probably not an easy word for most of us. But let me give you this encouragement. When you pray for someone, it becomes harder to be frustrated with them. It, it bends our heart toward them as we bring them before the throne of grace. As you pray for their blessing, you will be blessed, and you will grow in love for them. And you will even, as this passage uh, is taking us, you will even pray for the benefit and for the saving of their souls. That's where the passage takes us next. It says in verse 3, this is good, this prayer for all people, including rulers and authorities, this is good, And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We pray for all because God makes an invitation to all. In these verses, we receive a close-up portrait of the heart of our God. He desires that all men, all women would be saved. Do you believe that? Is that a, a hard truth for us to grapple with as Calvinists, as many of us identify ourselves, to see that God has a desire that all men and women would be saved? Let me assure you in this way that this passage doesn't contradict other Uh, doctrines that we find in Scripture, the doctrine of election and predestination, the the definite nature of Christ's atonement. But what this passage does is, is hold before us God's immeasurable love, His pursuing love for the nations. It's the pattern of the whole of Scripture. It's the pattern of the Old Testament. Do you remember God's promise to Abraham? That includes this, that through Abraham and his seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
It's why Psalm 117 has this call, let all the nations praise you. Not just Israel, let all the nations praise you. It's why the Lord rebukes Jonah, and in rebuking Jonah, rebukes us as well, and says, should not I pity Nineveh? I made them, they're fallen, and they're in need of a Savior. Should not I have compassion on Nineveh? And here in 1 Timothy 2, Paul's reminding us of God's great love, his pursuing love for the lost and for the nations. He's reminding us as well of God's offer, his invitation, his well-meant and true offer that all should come to him. Do you remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 11? Come to me, all you who labor, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or John 6, 37, when it says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. B.B. Warfield has this uh, beautiful sermon uh, called God's Immeasurable Love. He's preaching and reflecting on uh, that familiar verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He's trying to wrestle through what does it mean that God loved the world. And his main point, if I could summarize it in this way, was simply this, that we should not so focus on the definition of world that we miss the primary focus of this verse, God's great love. And in the same way as we read 1 Timothy 2 verse 4, we shouldn't so focus on defining all or limiting all or explaining it that we miss the point that God's desire, God's loving pursuit is so that all people would know Jesus that all people would turn to him in faith. God really does desire that all creatures made in his image would be saved and respond in faith and believe in the truth of the gospel. And what is the truth? What is the invitation that's given to all men and women? We see it described for us in verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It's a bit jarring, actually, verse 5. Maybe you noticed that when, when it was read. You have all these expressions, all and every, these big, inclusive words. And then in verse 5, it's exclusive. There's one God, one mediator between God and man. Maybe it seems almost contradictory to us to move from those inclusive statements to this very exclusive explanation of the gospel. And yet it's this exclusive God who brings a promise of hope and salvation to the world. And he stands in contrast to all the other false gods that the world would create. The gods of the nations are merely idols. They're constructed by human hands. They're constructed in human minds with false ideas and false hopes. And their end is always destruction. But there's only one true God. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is the one who created the hands and minds that construct these false idols. And he is their only hope 
for salvation. And that one and only true God desires and invites the nations to come and to know him as their Savior and as their Lord. In fact, it's as the one true God, and in particular rooted in, in the truth of the fact that he is the one and only true God, that the invitation comes. Just as one example, in Isaiah 45, verses 22 and 23, this is the word of God to not just Israel, but to the nations. He says, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I've sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. And that one God invites the nations to come. And as he does so, it's a call to us as the church as well. He reminds us of his wide open arms to the nations and calls us to have open arms to the nations as well. That they might come and know our Savior. So that one God invites and he makes the way open to the nations through his son. And that's what we see as well in verse 5. The one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And don't miss that, the man, Christ Jesus, eternal God who took on human flesh. So what is a, a mediator? It's someone who stands between two parties who are in a dispute, who brings them to a point of reconciliation and restores their relationship. I, I really enjoy um, crime novels and crime shows and crime movies. And one of the things that you see as a plot device in many of these stories is the hostage negotiator. This is a mediator, right? He stands between uh, law and order and the offender. He's the one who's supposed to try to bring them together. He's supposed to represent both of them and stand in between. And he uh, keeps uh, keeps order at bay until there's a resolution. But there's a problem, isn't there? The negotiator doesn't represent both. He represents one. He is law and order. And part of the skill is to convince the offender that somehow you're on their side. Our mediator doesn't have that problem. He stands as fully God, eternally God, very God, a very God, and yet at just the right time in the history of the world, he became man. He took on human flesh, and he paid the penalty for the sins of those that he represents. That's the subtle but clear point in verse 5. This is the man, Christ Jesus. He's fully God, able to meet God's perfect standard of righteousness and justice, but he's also fully man, able to meet our obligations, to live a perfect life in our place, to pay the full penalty for our sin, and to pay the full price of our redemption. And it's in him that God makes an invitation to all. Come to God in Christ. And this gospel promise in all its fullness is yours. So it's an invitation to all. But then he tells us how. He reminds us that there's a ransom for all. Look at verse 6. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all 
which is the testimony given at the proper time. This mediator bridges a gap that we could never bridge. The gulf was immense, separating a perfectly holy God from a fully sinful people. And it's only Jesus, by the blood of his cross, who's able to bridge that gap for us. And that's where Paul takes us, right to the foot of the cross, where God displays his saving power, his pursuing heart, by offering up his son as a ransom for the people of God. You even hear echoes, don't you, in verse 6 of the words of Jesus himself who said, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. Just notice a few things about what it means that he's a ransom for many or here a ransom for all. First of all, he offers payments. He pays the price for our redemption. Words are familiar, but let's never lose the weight of them. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He died our death. He paid the full price for our sin. And in doing so, offered a ransom that is the only hope that we have for salvation and peace with God. So it's a payment, but notice as well that the payment is that he gave himself. How does it say it there? He gave himself as a ransom for all. He offered up his life. No one took it from him. They didn't have the authority or the power to take life from the eternal Son of God, but he freely gave his life because he loved his people that much. And his desire was that they would know peace with God. So he paid the price. He gave his life to do so. And he offered his life as a substitute. That's not maybe so obviously clear in our translation, but the word that's used for ransom is different than what Jesus used in the Gospel of Mark. It's a word that actually means something like this, a substitute ransom. In other words, he offered an atonement. He was condemned and stood in our place. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted in our place. He was bruised and crushed and chastised for our peace. And by his stripes, we are healed. And it's by his wounds, by his death, that we can have peace with God. He stood in our place. But then notice the last thing it says about this ransom. It was a ransom for all. Once again, Paul holds before Timothy, the Holy Spirit holds before us the immeasurable love of God who pursues and invites all to come and who offers a ransom that's sufficient to cover the sins of all who would come in faith to Jesus. Let's understand, as this passage explains it to us, that for those who miss out on the benefits of the ransom of Jesus Christ, that the blame belongs not with God, but rather with those who refuse to receive and respond to the invitation. For he offers a ransom that's sufficient for all, so that all who come to him by faith have full forgiveness of sins and peace with God. 
So this passage has an invitation and a ransom for all. And then it ends with a testimony to all. Look again at verse 6. Who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The testimony in this passage is Christ himself. He was crucified and raised from the dead at just the right time. The invitation is rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he offers it to all and says all who would come can find rest. And that gospel invitation, that gospel testimony, the truth of what Jesus Christ has done to save sinners is now given to those appointed to preach and to herald the truth of the gospel. That's what Paul goes on to say. This testimony was given to me to proclaim as an apostle of Jesus Christ and a teacher of the gospel so that all the world might know, Jews and Gentiles alike might know salvation in Jesus. And it's the testimony given to us as the church of Jesus Christ to proclaim to the world. But first we should ask some questions. Have you responded to the generous invitation of God's immeasurable love in Christ? Have you acknowledged the depth of your sin and the payment for your sin that was too great for you to pay? Have you turned to Christ in faith as the only ransom that covers the penalty of your sin and offers you eternal life and fellowship with God? And do you find all of your hope, all of your joy, all of your confidence in Christ? Don't wait. Today is the day to respond in faith to that offer of the gospel. And then for Those who have responded, let's just end with a few reminders of what this calls us to as the church of Jesus Christ. The call of this passage is a unified church so captured by the glorious truth of the gospel that we would pray that all would come to know Jesus, that we would invite everyone in whom we come in contact with to come and to know the greatness of of our Savior. And with that call in mind, let's agree to unite in at least three ways, even today. First of all, to see people as God sees them. Men and women made in God's image. Men and women worth knowing and loving because they're valuable to God. Men and women with a need to know God. Men and women whom God has set His his invit- sent his invitation to and has a saving desire for. Let's see them in that way as those invited to trust in Christ as mediator, as ransom, and as savior to the eternal benefit of their souls. And then with minds and hearts united to God's saving mission, let's commit to this as well, to pray for all kinds of people, all nations, and all races, and very specifically our neighbors. Let's pray for them for their well-being, but especially for their salvation. And then thirdly, with our gifts, with our prayers, but also with our gifts of time and resources, 
Let's take that invitation to the world with the prayer, with the hope, and with the expectation that our pursuing God will save millions upon millions as he sets his love on them. Let's turn to him in prayer. Lord God, would you so shape us and mold us by the power of your spirit to conform us to your image in each and every way that you, would call, that you would call us to be shaped by you. But in particular this morning, we pray that you would shape us in this way, that our hearts and minds would be conformed to the image of our Savior who does indeed desire that all nations would come to him and has offered a ransom for all. Lord, would we be so captured by that vision that we would pray in that way with expectation and carry that invitation and might we rejoice as we see many come to know Jesus through the ministry of this church and the church throughout the world. We pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Now we get to stand and sing about the glorious cross of Jesus. Let's, let's do that.
Amen. And you may be seated. Well, John, thank you for pointing us to Jesus this morning and uh, that mediator uh, who went to the cross for us. And before he went to that cross on that night before when he was betrayed, uh, he uh, instituted this, the Lord's Supper, replacing uh, the Passover uh, with his own body and blood. So let me read for us the uh, words of institution from Luke chapter 22. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup And when he had given thanks, he said, "This, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Well, this chosen one, this Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who became our mediator, as you heard preached already, interceded for us before a holy God. Now, beyond reconciling us to that holy God, he also unites us to himself by faith so that we actually become adopted children of God. He loves his children in exactly the same way he loves his perfect son, Jesus Christ. I need to let that sink in for a moment. It's almost impossible to grasp how the Father could love me a sinner, the same way he loves his son, Jesus. Now, you may tell yourself that you've believed your whole life, and I don't know if that has fully sunk in for you of the level of love in which the Father loves you. But it's proven to us. Jesus came to give his life. That was the price that was paid. That is the worth of that has been placed upon us, right? Even the perfection of the life of Christ. And so in that love, coming to his own, he gives us this meal so that we might commune, not with a dead Savior in the grave, not with a martyr. We come to commune with the living God who rose again from the dead and is the very host of this meal. This is his house. We are his family. We get to enjoy a meal with our God. Now, this is a family meal, and so it is for those who have turned away from their sins and have entrusted themselves wholeheartedly to the Lord Jesus Christ, as you have been encouraged to do this morning. But for any who are here who have not made that commitment to Christ then please heed the warning that is given to us in the Scriptures and not partake of this meal lest you eat and drink judgment unto yourself. But we would hope 
that we could talk to you and, and, and have time with you to be able to encourage you in a relationship with Christ so that the day might come that you would be able to partake with us. And this would go for the children as well. Any who are not communicant members and have given a credible profession of faith that they would also refrain until such a time as we can rejoice in you giving that public profession of faith. But if you are a baptized and professing communicant member in a church that professes the free grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are welcome to come to the Lord's table. This supper is for sinners. And the Lord welcomes those who believe and rejoice in the grace that is found in Jesus Christ because therefore in him there is no condemnation. Let us pray together. Father, we are in awe of the love that you would give to sinners like us, that you would send your son as a mediator And that he would even continue to intercede for us before the throne of grace. Lord Jesus, we need that intercession as we are united to you by faith and we want to be united to you by faith even through this supper, being nourished spiritually because of what this bread represents, even your body and blood. And so we ask you to set apart these common elements for their holy use as we commune with you. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do a great work helping us to know the fullness of the love of our God as we hold it in our hands. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was that Lord Jesus that took the bread and after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
Let us rejoice in the love of our Father as we partake together. Well, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, This is the cup of the new covenant given in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me.
The Lord Jesus gave himself because he passionately loves you. Partake with thanks. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God, you created all things, you sustain all things. Every molecule throughout the entire vast universe. And yet you focus your time meeting with us here. Your condescension, your care, your love is amazing. Help us overflow by your grace with that same love for other sinners in our lives. For your glory we pray. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace now and forever.